everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. I'm James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor here at Heart. And today I'm joined by the editor-in-chief of the journal, Professor Catherine Otto from Seattle in the USA. Catherine, along with several co-authors, has written Cardiogenetics, a primer for the clinical cardiologist in the Education in Heart section of the journal. And we have a discussion all about the paper. The paper will be free, open access for a couple of weeks after this podcast drops. So please go ahead, follow the links in the show notes and enjoy the paper. Please also spread the word about the podcast to help us reach new listeners. Thank you very much. Uh, Perhaps we can start, Catherine, by you introducing yourself for the Heart podcast audience. This is Catherine Otto. I'm the editor-in-chief of Heart. And uh, on today's podcast, I'm uh, putting on my hat of I am the director of our Marfan and Aortic Disease Clinic, which is a combined cardiology, genetics, surgery, and vascular surgery clinic. And Catherine, you recently wrote, along with some co-authors, Savla and Hisama, a very nice education in heart piece, which is called Cardiogenetics, a primer for the clinical cardiologist. And I really wanted to get you on the podcast to ask you a little bit more about that piece. What what was the inspiration for writing it, Catherine? Well, I mean, really, the inspiration is seeing patients with genetic diseases. And the fact that, you know, until recently, we really had to sort of assume whether a patient had a genetic condition causing their cardiac disease. We were not really able to do genetic testing you know, but with the recent advances in genetics with the massively parallel DNA sequencing and the ability to get large volume commercial labs, we really can get gene panels in our patients and understand disease um, more precisely, which has important implications for patient management and patient outcomes. And what would you say is the overall rationale behind genetic testing in cardiovascular disease? What are we aiming to achieve by doing it? Well, what we're really aiming for is to identify patients who have a condition that is likely to become, you know, clinically relevant and to prevent the manifestations of disease when possible or to monitor more closely and to treat patients optimally. Um, It also has the advantage that we are able to identify family members and, and, uh, you know, and provide two things, the patients who don't have the condition, you know, people who are related but not affected can know that early in life and do not need to be concerned about it or have monitoring. And and the people in the family who do have the condition can be monitored early and have better outcomes over their lifetime. And how long would you say genetic testing in its current form has been able to help us answer some of these questions? Is it the last five years or 10 years or how long have you been using it routinely? Yeah, I think it's really variable by institution. I'd say really the last five years for for me before that, we could get it, but we had to ten- send the testing out um, and it took a long time to get it. We often had to ask for just one gene, but now we can get our own, we can get gene panels at our own institution. So very quick results um, with panels that we have developed in collaboration with our genetics colleagues to say what's clinically relevant, what makes genetic sense and what panels do we want to do on our patients at our institution. And should we dive into some hardcore genetics for the audience? I hope everybody's awake. Um, Perhaps we can start off by discussing what exactly is meant by SNPs, SNPs. 
Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think genetics is hardcore. Genetics, genetics is fascinating. I think everybody is actually fascinated by genetics, uh, as evidenced by all the interest in uh, the widely publicly available genetic testing. But I think the first thing to understand is there are genetic variations in everyone. We all have genetic variations. So SNPs stands for single nucleotide polymorphisms. And these are the changes in individual nucleotides in our DNA that everyone has, and they're very common. And when they're present in more than 1% of the population, they're considered to be normal and uh, usually cause no disease, but are a marker of the person's genetic background. And how about GWAS or genome-wide association studies? What are they used for? So genome-wide association studies take a large populations and take the entire genetic sequence and look at these SNPs across the population to identify patterns of disease and potentially to identify uh, new pathogenic variants. Um, as you can imagine, because each person has four to five million different SNPs and you have a large number of patients in these studies in order to identify these differences, you need really advanced computational modeling to even make sense of the data. So a GWAS study provides a lot of insight into disease susceptibility, um, and it can identify a variant. So a concrete example, so in calcific aortic valve disease, a GWAS study identified a specific locus that turned out to be in the LP little a gene. And by itself, that didn't say that this is pathogenic, but then there were subsequent studies showing that that single nucleotide polymorphism is associated with abnormal levels or elevated levels of LP little a and is associated with a higher prevalence of disease. So that's the way that we can use GWAS studies from a research point of view to identify um, uh, variants that are causative for disease. And finally, what do we mean by pathogenic variants? You've kind of outlined it above, but is there, is there a definition you can give people to take away? Yeah, so a pathogenic variant is a, a single nucleotide change that actually results in the protein being abnormal, either inadequate production of a protein or a protein that is dysfunctional that causes a particular phenotype in most patients with that genetic variant. And most often, you know, the kinds of things we think about are like Marfan syndrome or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or some of the arrhythmias like the long QT syndromes. These are in inherited disorders that run in families, often in an autosomal dominant fashion, where a single gene abnormality or variant results in a phenotypic disease. And should we talk a little bit about Marfan's disease? Because you mention it and illustrate it very nicely in, in figure one of the, of the Education in Heart paper. So it starts off with a pathogenic variant in the fibrillin 1 gene. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about how that affects the pathophysiology and the phenotype, finding outcomes and management, how gene testing can really help? Yeah, I think from a clinical point of view, the way this really helps is that in a patient with who comes in with a dilated aorta with, an, with what looks like an aortopathy, you know, to start with, you know, does this patient have a phenotype that might have a genetic cause? Is there any family history in the patient or do they, you know, have any relatives with it? And the first place we start is with a phenotypic evaluation. Does this aortopathy look like it is genetic or does this look more like hypertensive heart disease or atherosclerotic disease? So things like age, uh, clinical presentation, family history, but these days most importantly, imaging. 
you know, the images look fairly different in a uh, inherited uh, aortopathy where the sinuses and the root and the sinotubular junction are dilated compared to hypertensive disease, which is more in the ascending aorta. And so how does genetic testing help? So, so two ways, it helps identify, you know, in, a, in a, the relatives of that patient, it helps identify do the relatives have the disease and should they be monitored? And in the patient, it affects how we treat the patient. How often do we image the patient? If they, when do we intervene? And when we do intervene, what intervention should we do? So um, to be more specific, so if a patient has Marfan syndrome, we would recommend preventative surgery on the aorta when the aortic size reaches five centimeters. But if it's hypertensive disease, we would wait till it's 5.5 centimeters. And if it's low edetes, which is another genetic uh, pathologic variant, we would recommend surgery even earlier. So it really affects the management of our patients quite dramatically. And that's both from a surveillance point of view and obviously also from a treatment point of view, right? Absolutely. Um, and then for the family members, it's very helpful because if the family member uh, is tested for the exact same variant as the patient has and doesn't have it, then they don't have the condition and they don't need to worry about it or have continued monitoring. And if the, the relatives do have the condition, then they can start on a program of periodic imaging um, and often medical therapy as well to prevent progression and to be, to be intervened on at the optimal time to prevent adverse outcomes. And you know, this has resulted in huge changes. Uh, people with Marfan syndrome used to die in their 40s. Pretty uniformly, the average life expectancy was, was the mid 40s. And now most patients with Marfan live a normal life expectancy. So we've touched on aortopathy, Catherine. Can we talk about where you might use genetic testing in patients with cardiomyopathy? When do you tend to use that? Yeah, I think this is a little more controversial, but I think it is important in starting to identify uh, familial patterns. Many patients do have a familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or familial dilated cardiomyopathy. There's a variety of genes uh, at this point, it's not been used to change therapy specifically in any of our guidelines, but it certainly changes monitoring. In the family members of patients with an inherited dilated cardiomyopathy, we'll start uh, imaging surveillance with echocardiography, typically early in the disease, or they might even have MRI scanning if that's a, a concern for the identifying the condition and then early medical treatment to prevent progression to LV dilation and dysfunction. The, you know, arrhythmias are another place where I, you know, I think there's some very interesting examples, you know, of depending on which type of long QT syndrome a patient has based on the genetics, there's different triggers, whether the trigger is gonna be a sudden loud, sudden loud noise or it's gonna be uh, excessive exercise or fever, depends upon the genetic variant. So we can actually provide patients lifestyle recommendations based upon their genetic information. And can you talk about the concept of panels of uh, genetic tests that you sometimes order for different groups of patients? You said that this was a fairly recent thing. Yeah, instead of looking at the patient and trying by a variety of me uh, measurements to decide does this patient have Marfan syndrome or low edetes or not a genetic condition at all, Instead, I can say this looks like it may be a genetic condition. Let's get our aortic, aortic disease panel 
And we're using about 15 of the most common genes in our panel. Some, some places do a much more comprehensive one with up to 60 different uh, genetic variants known to be associated with aortic disease. But if we do those panels and it's negative, we know that the patient at least doesn't have one of those genes, and that is very helpful information for going forward. Similarly, for cardiomyopathy and arrhythmia, you know, we, we, don't, we, we have the whole genome and we can sequence the whole genome, but we actually look at the specific genes known to be pathologically associated with phenotypes causing disease. So we have panels for each of these conditions at our institution and other centers have them as well um, to, met, to, to diagnose in each patient what the most likely diagnosis might be. And can you talk about the importance of specialist genetic services within, for example, your hospital, but I'm sure they're replicated around the world, and, and what value uh, they add so clinically trained geneticists as opposed to a cardiologist running the service themselves? Well, you know, it gets, it gets very complicated. It keeps, there, we, we keep finding new genes, and there are patients who have an abnormal sequencing, so they have a, a, a change in the genetic sequence, but we don't know if it's pathologic, so they have a variant of unknown significance. And those are difficult to, to understand because most of them turn out to not be related to the disease, but, but some do. So I think it's very helpful to have genetics to understand some of these more complicated results, whether the expression in different family members is different but also from a, a counseling point of view, I mean, a family finding that they have a genetic condition is a, is a huge change in their life, and it's a, a difficult concept for people to understand. And so the genetics team and the genetics counselors can sit with the patient and the family and help them understand the implications of what it means and how it will be managed long term. So we definitely work very closely with our genetic colleagues and we actually uh, just got more funding for more genetic counselors to even make this more effective for patients. And do you have any views on direct-to-consumer genetic testing? You certainly mention it in the Education in Heart article. What are yeah, the pitfalls so the, there? Yeah, I think the direct consumer uh, is mostly looking at the SNPs. It's looking at these normal variations and it tells people more about their ancestry and their, their background in terms of, of where their family came from in the world. And it tells less about diseases. It might tell general, you know, you have a higher risk of cancer, a higher risk of cardiac disease, but it's not really looking for the actual pathogenic variants. Uh, and they may not be allowed to report those. And even if a commercial panel says, oh, we look for cardiomyopathy, they might only be looking for one or two genes instead of 20 or 30 or 100. And so the patient may think, okay, I got checked and I didn't have it, when they actually do. And I think finally there's been you know, some concerns about accuracy of the direct-to-consumer um, marketing uh, in terms of what they're reporting, whether they're doing it accurately, and there's regulations as to what they're allowed to report. So you know, I was thinking, well, if it's direct-to-consumer, everybody can just get it themselves, but it's not that simple. What you get from a direct-consumer is not at all the same as what we get from a a clinical genetic analysis. And of course, there's a total lack of pre-test counseling as well that would presumably, I haven't had a test myself, but I imagine the level of uh, skilled counseling given to somebody before they choose a direct-to-consumer test, for example, for a breast cancer gene or Alzheimer gene is, is quite low. Yeah, and I think you know the, the, the pre-counseling, it depends sort of on what's the implication of the gene change. Mm -hmm. And somebody, somebody's already had an aortic dissection 
or has an aortic aneurysm, you know, the pre-counseling is less important because they have the condition already. The right. question is whether it's genetic. Whereas in somebody who is well and doesn't have any medical problems, you know, then, then testing is different, uh, particularly if there might not be any treatment for it. If there's no treatment for it, why would you want to know? Right, uh, exactly. Yeah, you know, I think we're all going to realize that we, that we all have pathogenic variants. We just don't know which ones we have. And uh, you probably don't want to know which ones you have unless it actually makes a difference and there's something you can do about it. And just to wrap up, Catherine, perhaps you can tell us all how you use genetics on, in your own practice. We, we, I think we've touched on many of the patient groups, but do you have any closing comments about it and whether it's you're doing more or less than you were a few years ago and uh, what kind of patient groups you routinely send for genetic testing these days that maybe you wouldn't have in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really uh, opened my eyes. It's been very illuminating. I think, you know, the first, when we first became available to do it, I was astonished to find that many of the patients who I just thought had very severe Marfan syndrome didn't have Marfan syndrome at all. They had Lowy Dietz syndrome, and they have a different condition with a worse outcome. They need different monitoring and different treatment. And that was not at all evident before genetic testing, and before that, a pathologic variant was described. Um, at the other end, I'm also becoming even more surprised now in that older patients where we'd say, well, it's just hypertensive disease, why would we test this patient? Many of them turn out to actually have pathogenic variants. We're starting to see Marfan is a much more diverse disease than we had thought. It's not all people with severe disease. There's quite a range. Some families and some patients have very mild disease and present much later in life. So I think it's really changing how we practice. And, and we have so many patients that with genetics, we worked out that rather than having to send every patient to genetics clinic to get testing, I can just order it myself from cardiology clinic, as can other cardiologists. And we can then send to the genetics clinic only if there is a need for additional counseling or um, evaluation. So it makes it much more efficient. Patients uh, like it. Um, I think it really helps in management and it's totally transformed my practice. Well, thank you very much indeed, Catherine, for your time. As ever, it's brilliant to chat to you. And the article will be free for several weeks after this podcast is released. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. 